invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I'll turn there with a full awareness that we are entering some of the most familiar territory in all of Scripture. John chapter 3 is the famous passage in which Jesus presents the gospel to Nicodemus, but what we're going to focus this morning is not on that presentation of the gospel, but the story that John includes that follows the presentation of the gospel to Nicodemus. We'll draw our attention specifically to verses 22 through 36. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. You can follow along as I read them. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was baptizing. I'm sorry, there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore... There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all He who is of the earth speaks from the earth and speaks of the earth. But he who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. But he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this. That God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the spirit Without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The Gospel of John is a book about the identity of Jesus. Near the end of the gospel, John writes telling us why he tells us all of the stories that he included in this gospel. He says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that any number of stories could have been included in his gospel, but the stories that are included are written for this reason, John 20, verse 31, that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that in believing in him, you would have eternal life. John is saying that everything that he includes in this gospel is written for the purpose of showing and explaining and even persuading that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the very son of God. 
And so you can literally approach any story in the Gospel of John and say somehow this is meant to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. On most stories, it's pretty blatantly obvious what John is doing. As John is writing this Gospel, Jesus is included in every single scene except for two. Literally, anywhere you turn to the gospel, except for two scenes, Jesus is present and he is the central focus of the passion. The only two scenes where Jesus doesn't appear, where he isn't actually present, is first in John chapter 20. It's the scene of the empty tomb. Jesus isn't there. And that's exactly the point. The fact that Jesus isn't there points to who he is. It proclaims that he is the son of God because he rose from the grave. The, he, the tomb is empty. He's not there. Well, that plays exactly into John's strategy that you would believe that Jesus is the son of God. He rose from the dead. The only other story that's included in the gospel of John in which Jesus is not present is our passage this morning. John chapter 3 verses 22 through 26. This one's a little bit tougher. For some reason... John believes it fitting towards his ultimate goal to include this story about John the Baptist's final testimony. Why does he do that? Remember, remember, he could have included anything in this gospel. What he included in these pages is there for a very specific purpose. So why is this story about the testimony of John the Baptist given? Jesus isn't even there. Oh, he's talked about a lot, but he's not present. So why is this included? And to understand, to answer that question, we need to zoom out a little bit and get a little bit more of a context. We're all very familiar with John chapter 3. The gospel is presented to Nicodemus, a Jewish religious man, a teacher of the law, by most individual standards would have been perceived as a righteous man, and he comes to Jesus by night, and Jesus gives him the gospel. Fast forward to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, we have the presentation of the gospel again by Jesus, but this time it's to a Samaritan woman who is a deceiver and who is an adulteress. Beginning of John chapter 3, presentation to a righteous man. Beginning of John chapter 4, presentation of the gospel to a sinful woman. Clearly, we see the gospel emphasis here, but then sandwiched in between those two stories is John's final testimony. Why is it included? When you understand what John is doing, it doesn't have to be there. It doesn't progress the story that John is giving in any particular way, but he includes it nonetheless for a very, very specific purpose. I believe why John tells us this story is because he wants us to see a picture of what complete submission to Christ looks like. John the Baptist models what complete submission to Christ looks like. We've seen Nicodemus receive the gospel, but... By all indications, Nicodemus doesn't believe the gospel at the end of John chapter 3. John the Baptist models what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Now, again, we have to ask, how does that play into John's ultimate role? 
If he's writing that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, why does he give us a picture of what submission to Christ looks like? And here's the reason. John the Baptist responds to a difficult scenario in his life. Proclaims. It it announces, it, it screams the identity of Christ. When John responds to losing his followers, his response points to the fact that he was convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. John's response proclaims that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is who he claimed to be. So he makes some incredible statements in this passage. Incredible statements that all center around his total submission to God becoming. We're going to walk through this passage and see statements that are glorious. These are the kind of statements that we, we can hang up on our walls and look at them and appreciate those statements. But when you understand the context in which John the Baptist speaks these words, it adds so much gravity to what he's saying. John the Baptist is losing something here. He's losing his followers. He's losing those that he has worked for and cared for and shepherded throughout his life. And in the midst of losing what he has worked for, his response shows us that Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, this is what it looks like to be submissive to Christ. And so in this passage this morning, what we will see are three ways to increase Christ and decrease self. Three ways to increase Christ and decrease self. We must learn from John's model. We must learn from John the Baptist's example. He's absolutely making statements that are true about himself. But remember, this is John the Baptist. He is a voice. He's proclaiming something. He's teaching the people around him something very particular. And that is that when you come to terms with who Jesus is, this is the response. Complete submission. It all centers around the line in verse 30. We know it well. John chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is the central focus of John the Baptist. More glory to him less glory to me, more fame for him, less for me, more of him, less of me. He must increase, I must decrease. Three ways to go about that. Three ways to increase Christ and decrease self. Number one, remember that every blessing comes from God. Remember that every blessing comes from God. Now that is a probably a bit of an unexpected first point. So let's back up again and get a running start here in what exactly is happening. In verse 25, there is a debate, a discussion that happens between a Jew and John's disciples. Let's read about that. Verse 25. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. That's all we see. 
That's all we're told about that debate. We don't get to see the content of that debate. We don't really know exactly what was talked about there. All we know is what John's disciples walked away with, and that's revealed in verse 26. And they, his disciples, came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. So whatever this debate about purification consisted of, John the Baptist's disciples come out of that debate concerned for their leader. They come out of that debate saying, John's losing his followers. Again, we're not told exactly what this debate over purification consisted of. My guess is that it went something along the lines of a Jew coming to John's disciples and saying, what is wrong with your leader's baptism? Because his followers are leaving him for another baptizer. Is, is his baptism insufficient? Is it not cleansing? Is it not purifying? Is it not good enough? Now, that's a misunderstanding of what baptism actually is. Baptism in and of itself doesn't purify. But it's easy to see how a Jew could have gotten there in viewing baptism and thinking along the lines of, of rituals and how they could have seen that as something that purified. And so when they see the followers of one baptizer leaving for the followers of another baptizer, they have questions about the legitimacy of this guy's baptism. That's fair. So his disciples come to John and they say, John, what's going on? Why are your followers leaving you? They're concerned for their leader. They're concerned that his followers are leaving him. This is all that John has. Remember who John the Baptist is. This is a guy who wears a, a camel skin. He's got a leather belt and he eats locusts and wild honey. Like this, this is, he's an odd guy and all he has is his followers. And all that he has is leaving him. His followers are leaving for something else. So it makes sense that his disciples would be concerned for him. So they come to him and they say, John, why are your followers leaving you? And how does he respond? Verse 27. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John's response is that he remembers that every blessing comes from God. John's response is to look to his disciples and say, yes, I had followers, but I only had followers because God gave them to me. I only have followers because God allowed those followers to come to me. I did not earn them. How could I hold on to something that I didn't earn? This was a gift from God to me. And if he takes it, who am I to say no? We need to understand a few things about John the Baptist to really comprehend the gravity of this situation. And Matthew, don't turn there, but I want to read for you Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. Here's what he says about him. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Think about that statement. Jesus says, among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Okay, the born of women category is everyone. 
What Jesus is saying is that John the Baptist is the greatest man to ever walk the earth. He, he is the greatest. He's the greatest born among women. There is no one who has arisen that is greater than John the Baptist. I say that to say this. If anyone deserved a spotlight, it was John the Baptist. If anyone deserved to maintain his followers, it was John the Baptist. But when John the Baptist's followers are leaving him, what is his response? He says, I didn't earn them. It was a gift from God. God gave me followers, and if he takes them away, I'm not saying no. I'm willing and submissive to his plan. John the Baptist remembers that every blessing comes from God. This is such a perfect response. This is the biblical response to anything. Do you hear the submission in John's voice here? He's losing his followers. And, and this, this is like Job, when Job losing everything. He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. John responds much the same way. God is taking away his followers. And John recognizes that and says, he's the one that gave them to me. Of course he can take them away. He remembers, he remembers that every blessing comes from God. What he believes about Christ drives him to do that. This is what submission to Christ looks like. That is the first way, the first way to increase Christ and decrease self. Let's, let's ask, how do we respond when God gives us something how do we respond when God takes something away? Do we respond in likeness with John the Baptist here, with a willingness to let go of anything except Christ? Everything is a gift of God. I've earned nothing. I can hold on to nothing. The only thing I can hold on to is Christ because that's the appropriate response to who Jesus is. When you come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the response is to hold everything with empty hands and to say every blessing comes from God. I hold nothing. I only hold to him. That's what John the Baptist does. Number one, remember that every blessing comes from God. Number two, rejoice in the exaltation of Christ. Rejoice in the exaltation of Christ. So we continue to walk through this passage in verse 28. John begins to explain his role again to his disciples. This is not new territory. He's been explaining his role his entire ministry, but his disciples missed it. He says this in verse 28. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of them. He qualifies, you're my witnesses to this. I've told you this, you know this. I'm not the Christ. I've been sent ahead of the Christ. That's why John the Baptist came. He came preaching, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. John's role, his purpose in life was to prepare the way for Christ, and he's, he's fully aware of that. So when Christ comes... It would make no sense for him to resist his followers going to Christ. That was the whole point. So he characterizes, qualifies his, his role yet again for his disciples. And then he gives an illustration. 
He gives a, a, is, is a parable in verse 29. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Okay, we read that and probably miss a little bit of the significances because there's some significant gaps between weddings in our day and weddings in their day. So I want to do a little explaining about what a wedding would have looked like. We have three characters in this story. You have the bride. She really doesn't receive the attention here. Who receives the focus is the bridegroom, the groom, and the friend of the bridegroom. In our modern vernacular, that would be the best man. In weddings during John the Baptist's day, <clears throat> the, the, the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, had a significantly more prominent role than he does today. Even in the day of the wedding, he had a very significant role that he would have performed at the beginning of the wedding day. He would have been a, a person of focus. He would have been a focal point. Eyes would have been locked onto the best man as he, was, as he was doing what the best man does. The groom and the bride have not become central focus yet. The bridegroom is performing his task. This best man is doing his job, and he is the central focus, and then the time comes when his task is completed. And the essence of the wedding happens where, where the, the bride and the groom, they come together, and they are married. And this is when the celebrations begin. And these were major celebrations in John's day. Massive celebrations where people are, are at feasts and they're celebrating the fact that this, this man and this woman have been joined together, they're now husband and wife. And if there was a best man who in the midst of all of the celebrations, in the midst of all of the festivities that were happening because of this wedding, was off in the corner mourning the fact that he is no longer the central focus be a horrible best man. No, like a, a good best man, a good friend of the bridegroom is at the front of the line cheering on this, this new husband and wife. He's excited for them. He's ecstatic for them. And he knows that his role was only to serve to allow that to happen. That's what the best man was there for. John says, I'm the best man in this scenario. I'm the friend of the bridegroom, and I'm not meant to be the focus. The wedding isn't about me. It's about the, the, the husband and the wife. I've only served to allow that to happen. You look at the life of John from an earthly perspective, and, and, and it's, it's a tragedy. John is serving this purpose. He's going about this goal and he's accumulated followers. He's become a well-known man. These people are following him and then Christ comes onto the scene and his followers start leaving him. They continue to leave him and John the Baptist, as, as the camera shifts, and he, he fades from the scene. He's left literally alone. And that's why his disciples are concerned for him. And so they come to him and they tell them these things. But what is John's response? He's not mourning. He's not crying. Look at the end of verse 29. So this joy of mine has been made full. 
What is John's response that he's no longer the center of a focus? What is John's response to the fact that he is fading from the scene? His joy is made full. That terminology is, my joy is at maximum capacity. I could not be more joyful than I am right now. It's so counterintuitive that John is losing all the glory, but his joy is filling up. How can he do this? How can he respond this way? Because he knows who Christ is. He knows the identity of Christ, and so he can say, my joy is made full. Well, if we're given this story to see what submission to Christ really looks like, we have to ask ourselves a question. How, how do we do this? Because bridging the gap here is a little bit difficult. You probably won't find yourself in the same type of scenario as John the Baptist, where people are leaving you to go to Christ. Hopefully, in people coming to you, they're coming to Christ, and that as the church, we're functioning in that way. If people are leaving us to go to Christ, there's a problem. So you have to ask the question, like, how do we do what John the Baptist does here? How do we rejoice in the exaltation of Christ? And and to answer that, we have to ask a question. What is, what is my, my mental, my, my emotional response to the authority and the supremacy of Christ? Ask that question. How do you respond to the position of Christ? Because that's what's happening in this passage. John, with an understanding of the authority and the supremacy of Christ, is overjoyed. And I see that, and as I'm writing this out, I'm thinking like, I don't feel like it's common for us to respond to the position of Christ in that way, with ecstatic joy. Joy at maximum capacity. But that's how John responds. He responds to the position of Christ with absolute joy. Hallelujah, he says, that Christ would receive followers because of who he is. Ecstatic. What would it look like for us to do that? What would that look like? He explains it. Verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. John says, I can be completely joyful in the position of Christ because I'm fixated on increasing glory to him and not only that, but decreasing glory to myself. I don't need the glory. I don't want the glory. I don't want the attention. It all needs to be given to Christ. He must increase, I must decrease. What are you saying? More of Christ, less of me. And it's here that we come to a fundamental awareness in this passage, and that is that John does not presume that he can add glory to Christ without it costing him something. He knows that giving glory to Christ and giving glory to himself, those are opposed to each other. 
He can't do them both. And so it's in utter submission and utter humility that he says, I don't need the glory. I don't want the glory. It's all going to him. More glory to him, less glory to me. John is all in on this commitment. Not only does he teach, Christ should have followers. But he's completely on board with his followers going to Christ. He embraces that reality. He's joyful at that reality. He rejoices that Christ is being exalted. This is so good. This is such a picture of submission to Christ. It's easy. It's easy to sing more glory to God, more glory to Christ. But John takes it to another level. He says, more glory to God, more glory to Christ. He must be exalted, less of me. Take the camera off of me. Take the focus off of me. I only live to serve him and submit to him. And so he can rejoice in the exaltation of Christ because he knows, he knows who he is. Number three, number three, resound the glories of Christ. Resound the glories of Christ. We have to ask ourselves a question. How can John respond this way? We've been saying this all along. How can John respond this way? It's because he knows who Christ is. And so what he does in the rest of this passage is he begins to preach he begins to proclaim to the people around him. He begins to preach to himself. He resounds the glories of Christ. How can I respond with total submission? Let me tell you about who this Christ is. How can I be completely humble in view of him? Let me tell you about who he is. Okay, so let's, let's walk through the rest of this passage and see how, John's descri how John describes Christ. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth speaks of the earth. But he who comes from heaven is above all. How can I submit to Christ in this way? Because it's, it's Christ, this is the Messiah, he's above all. This is a, this is a positional statement of authority. If I can't submit to him, who could I submit to? He, he is above everything. He's going to keep going and, and understand that John, he's just ranting here. He's just ranting about how great Christ is. And he's going to give, I see five things here. You could make it less, you could make it more. There's a lot that he says here. He, he, he is going to rant like so many other Authors in Scripture do about how great Christ is and how that enables them to respond in the way that they do. So he says, Christ is above all in verse 31. He also says in verse 31 that Christ is, a, Christ is from heaven. In verse 31, he who comes from heaven is above all. How can I submit to him? He, he's from heaven. He's not from the earth. He comes preaching heaven and it's not like he's just coming up with cool ideas about heaven. No, he's been there. He came from heaven, and that's the message that he's preaching. This is how I can submit to him. He, he keeps going. Christ is the revelation of the Father. 
Verse 33 and 34. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. John is saying, this man, Christ, he's the revelation of God. He is God revealed. In John chapter 1, verse 18, he would describe him as God explained. He speaks the very words of God. How could I not submit to him? It's the revelation of the Father. He's above all. He's from heaven. He's the revelation of the Father. Later in verse 35, the Father loves the Son. It's another reason that he could submit. Christ is loved by the Father. The relationship between the Father and the Son is one of love. It's one of unity. John would have been a witness to this in when, when he baptized Jesus. Jesus is baptized. He comes out of the water and a voice from heaven says, This is my Son whom I love. John would have been fully aware of this straight from the mouth of God, that Christ is loved by the Father. How could I not submit to him? Verse 35 again, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Christ is given all things. It's the extent of the Father's love to the Son. He gives him all things. So he's above all. He's from heaven. He's the revelation of God. He's loved by the Father. God's given him everything. It's all his. There is no other response. There's no other reaction than this, to humbly and completely submit to him. That's it. If these statements are true, it's the only response. And so he proclaims and resounds these statements. Preach these truths to yourself. resound the glories of Christ to you, to those around you. Proclaim these truths. Because they're not just abstract information. These are truths that equip. These are truths that inspire and compel us to be submissive to the Father, to be submissive to his Son. We could, we could do this for a long time. We could go to Colossians 1. And look at more glories of Christ. Proclaim those to ourselves. We could go to Hebrews 1. Proclaim more glories of Christ. We could go to Revelation 5 and see the worthiness of Christ. Every tribe, tongue, and nation singing his praise and, and, and talk about how glorious he is. Scripture's filled with this. Scripture's filled with the glories of Christ and the preaching of those truths. Preach those to yourself. Preach those to those around you. Resound, resound the glories of Christ. That brings us to verse 36. It's a curious way to end this passage. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We're familiar with John chapter 3. We know how it starts. It's a passage about belief. New birth, belief. 
John chapter 3 ends in verse 36 with another message about belief. This entire chapter is gift-wrapped in the theme of belief in the Son. Why? Because that is John, the author's burden, that every man would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and John the Baptist models that belief perfectly. He models that belief. And so as he's closing this statement, he says, all of these truths that I've just told you about Christ, it leads to one conclusion. You have to believe in him. You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you do that, you have eternal life. But if you don't obey the Son, you will not see life. See what John did there? He subtly but specifically, exchange the word belief for obey. He who believes in the Son will have eternal life, but he who does not, what's the opposite? He who does not believe the Son, no. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Oh, and so it becomes crystal clear that John the Baptist is obedient. He is obedient because he believes. He's submissive because he believes. And that is why we can look to John the Baptist and say this man is a model of submission to Christ. This man is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. This man is what it looks like to be obedient to Christ. This man is what it looks like to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that. Believe that. And there's no one in this room that doesn't struggle on some level with unbelief. I would hope that most of us on the surface believe those truths to be true. As I've been walking through the Gospel of John, the request that I find echoed in my heart again and again and again is Father, help our unbelief. Help me to grow in my belief in Jesus as the Son of God because it demands, it compels me to respond and submit in a unique way, the way that John the Baptist models for us.